Episode of World History Class with Mr. Lutz for Period 4, where we're going to look at Asia, particularly East Asia, and its interactions with the early modern world. I think this episode is best defined overall by change in continuity. So as I get into the uh, details of the episode today, make sure you kind of pay attention in terms of that particular theme. So for the key concept connections with today's episode, we're going to take a look at China and then Japan, and then we're going to kind of circle back at the end after all the key concept connections and zooming in and yada yada, all the different components. We'll kind of talk about some major things I want you to understand about the European presence in, let's say, the Indian Ocean and Pacific trading networks. So starting off with China, if you recall when we last left off with the Ming Dynasty, we learned about their conquest of the Mongol Yuan Dynasty in 1368 and their efforts to reestablish Confucian tradition and centralized government, and finally the subsequent voyages of Admiral Zheng He that had occurred in the early 15th century just prior to the taking off of the Age of Discovery in Western Europe. Uh, Zheng He had reestablished China's presence in the Indian Ocean, and if you recall, that stretched from the islands of Southeast Asia into South Asia, um, up into the Red Sea, and down the coast of East Africa. But back at home, in China that is, the constant threat of Mongol invasion to the north had led to the building of a new capital, Beijing, further into the north where Mongol movements could be closely monitored, and the furthering construction of the Great Wall of China was starting to take place at this time as well. So both of these investments required significant funds that could no longer really be used to finance these treasure ship voyages, so they're going to be discontinued. And we can't forget also there's just that general distaste that Confucian society had for trading commerce. Um, so yeah, that decision, you know, keep in mind, made at this time, just when European exploration is beginning to rapidly develop, leaves a lot of people questioning what could have been different in world history had the Chinese continued their efforts of overseas trade and exploration. But they didn't, so we move on. Um, by the 16th century, the Ming are starting to fall into decline as they're going to struggle to manage the influx of problems for their empire. Piracy is going to be a frequent issue for people in coastal communities to deal with, while the imperial government really lacks any kind of a desire or an ability to invest in a comprehensive solution for that problem. And you'll never guess what else was a problem for the Ming, unless you just assume, like everywhere else during this time period, there's rulers who isolate themselves from their people and decide instead to pursue a life of pleasure. Yes, the Chinese fall victim to that as well. For instance, the Emperor Wan Li ignored his government officials, didn't even bother to appear in public for several decades, and spent loads of money on material pleasures like his palaces and his entertainment. So we get some poor harvests in the early 17th century, leading to famine, and of course, inept Ming administration is unable to deal with this problem, which leads to peasant revolts. So these revolts are the perfect opportunity to provide a distraction while some invaders in the north, that is the Manchus, 
are going to come down and capture the Ming capital of Beijing in 1644. And they're going to replace the Ming as the government of China and thus establish the last of the Chinese dynasties known as the Qing. So the Manchus had lived on the fringes of China for centuries and had interacted with the Chinese as well. But now they're in charge of governing one of the most oldest and complex societies in the entire world. And by the 1680s, they had removed any remaining threat from the former Ming dynasty. So the elites of the Qing are going to familiarize themselves with Confucianism. They're going to work thoroughly integrated into their society and their government. But, and you'll recall this kind of happening with the, uh, the Mongols, they stop short when it comes to intermarrying with the Chinese, and they really don't allow the Chinese to learn about Manchu culture. The Emperor Kangxi, though, is a great example of a ruler who learned himself from Confucian tradition and applied it to his rule. He establishes new water management projects, helping to control floods and helping with irrigation, all while also helping to promote education throughout China. Uh, the Qing overall are able to establish control over Taiwan, Tibet, into parts of Central Asia, and they're even going to make Vietnam once again, and as well as Burma and Nepal, all states that owe tribute to the Qing. And this is going to be in part due to their uh, use of gunpowder weapons, kind of like we saw in the last chapter, dealing with those Islamic empires of the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals. So the Qing are sure to see that many Chinese institutions remain during their reign. Emperors are still going to claim they have the mandate of heaven. They're still going to rule by cultivating a sense of awe, including through the complexity and the intimidation that came through those walled red layers of what's known as the Forbidden City. Scholar bureaucrats are also going to be highly valued in their society, as they had been in, in prior dynasties. They've got to pass the extremely rigorous civil service exams, which were greatly expanded during this time, in order to have the privilege to earn a position that brought with it such respect from all others in Chinese society. And you've got to understand, if you step out of line as a bureaucrat and you engage in any kind of corruption at this time, you could be sure of a public beating and humiliation at a minimum, if not death that resulted from that type of punishment. Um, Confucian texts, Neo-Confucian commentaries are going to remain an important influence on society because they're going to emphasize filial piety, patriarchal home, and a sense of self-discipline. Um, our favorite, foot binding, yay, comes back into popularity, unfortunately, for the sake of women during this time. And thanks to the advent of photography during the late Ming era, our ability to Google search and get absolutely disgusted by what we see is now made possible. Thanks. Women are also going to be unable to seek a divorce from their husbands in marriages that are often going to have been arranged between families. So we definitely see patriarchy um, continuing on throughout Chinese history at this time. But what's going to be a changing factor is going to be that European contacts are going to be established during both the Ming and Qing era, and that's going to cause some changes within Chinese society. We're going to see the introduction of American foods like peanuts, sweet potatoes, and maize. They'll make their way into China, and what's important about them is they're able to grow in lands that had really not been successfully cultivated, and they can withstand drought better than those typical grains that had typically grown in China. This is going to help to boost food production and ultimately, of course, lead to more population growth within China. Not to mention global trade itself 
is going to bring unprecedented quality quantities of silver into Chinese shores in exchange for the porcelains, the silks, and the tea that the Chinese are known for. And this is all going to have a huge impact on their economy. However, the Chinese had maintained a really tight grip on how much foreign trade that they're going to permit. And what they're going to do is they're going to restrict the Portuguese to trade only within the port of Macau, and they're going to limit the British to be able to trade in Canton, also known as Guangzhou. So the Chinese, since the days of Zheng He, had really not established much of a global trade presence, but they do have a merchant community present in Southeast Asia. They're going to be a part of those hubs that are located in places like Manila and Batavia in modern-day Indonesia, where they're going to trade for silk and porcelain, primarily for the silver that had been flowing in from the Americas, thanks to those Manila galleons. But Confucian attitudes towards merchant activity is still going to be hostile, and it's still going to value stability over the pursuit of profits. Now, with the arrival of European merchants on the coast of China, that also is going to mean the reintroduction of Christianity into Chinese society. And the most prominent Christian influence comes from the Jesuit Catholic missionaries who established themselves with the explicit purpose of spreading the teachings of the Christian God and emphasizing education. So as they make their way into China, prominently being Matteo Ricci, who was an Italian Jesuit, he comes with a desire to spread Catholicism in China. He learned how to read and write in Chinese. He could personally interact as a result with the highest officials of the Chinese government. But what really grabs the attention of officials in the Chinese court was the European understanding of scientific developments and technology. The Europeans helped the Chinese with mathematics and astronomy. They've shown off their inventions like clocks and cannons and musical instruments. The Jesuits didn't want to just wow the Chinese, though. They're not just looking to impress them with technology. They, of course, want to convert them to Christianity, and they attempt to do so, to do so by emphasizing how it's similar to Confucianism. But the mix of having this uncompromising religion in Christianity, this uncompromising monotheism, means there's really no room left for the Chinese who are used to practicing a mix of philosophies and religions from Confucianism to Buddhism to Taoism. So as a result, very few Chinese are going to have converted to Christianity, and the emperor Kangxi is going to technically ban the religion, and the missionary project in China is eventually going to come to an end. So, turning our attention to Japan. When we last left off with Japan, if you recall, they'd been locked in a state of feudal struggle as the efforts to unify the country under the authority of one shogun and a Confucian bureaucracy had faded. But by the 16th century, efforts were underway to successfully centralize power and bring an end to the period of civil war. By 1600, Tokugawa Ieyasu is able to build off of the efforts of Oda Nobunaga first. Nobunaga had driven out the last of the Ashikaga shoguns. And after him, Toyotoma Hideyoshi had continued down the path of getting more and more daimyo to submit to the authority of the shogun. By the time of Tokugawa Ieyasu, we get the firm establishment of the Tokugawa shogunate. So the focus of Ieyasu over anything else is to centralize his authority by bringing all remaining daimyo under his control. So if you recall, it was these daimyo who were the regional lords of Japan, and they were the real sources of authority during that era of civil war that we had known, 
which is technically called the Sengoku period. Uh, these daimyo had been strengthened, of course, through their trade relations with Europeans because what it gives them access to is gunpowder weapons, which could give them an advantage over the other daimyo. So what Tokugawa Ieyasu is going to do to enhance his power and enhance his control is he's going to move the capital to a small fishing town called Edo. And Edo is soon going to grow into the booming city that we now know as Tokyo. From here, he institutes policies that are going to be able to bring those daimyo into his submission. He establishes what's called the alternate attendance policy, which tells the daimyo they have to come and live in Edo every other year. Not only that, but the daimyo also had to keep their family in Edo on a permanent basis, so they're not traveling back and forth with the daimyo every other year. So what this really means at the end of the day is that the daimyo are away from their regional power base for any considerable length of time. They really can't cement any kind of strength back at home. They have to spend significant amounts of money, not only on their homes in Edo, but also on their travels to the capital as they're going to travel in groups with their samurai. And lastly, their family, being in Edo, is always under the watch of the imperial authorities. So if you step out of line, there would be consequences potentially for your loved ones. So this system and the emphasis on Neo-Confucian Neo teachings in Japanese education mean that loyalty and a respect for hierarchy are going to continue to define Japanese society during this era. But this emphasis on Neo-Confucian teachings does not mean that Japanese cultural values went ignored. Japanese culture and values were being promoted through these native learning schools beginning in the 18th century. They're going to emphasize values of Shintoism and its reverence for nature, as well as promoting the Japanese to think of themselves as being superior to others. And so speaking of that, the shoguns are going to start to grow somewhat hostile to the influence of Europeans. Francis Xavier, who was another Jesuit missionary, just like Matteo Ricci, had arrived in Japan in 1549, and he began efforts to convert the Japanese to Christianity. Now, originally, this is during the time of like Oda Nobunaga, he took a liking to the Christians because he thought they could be used as a counterbalance to this Buddhist threat that he was constantly dealing with. So early on, the Jesuits are kind of successful, and even some of the daimyo begin to convert because of the military support that a union with Christian Europeans could potentially offer in the form of advanced weapons. Some Christians, some, some European Christians, even thought that Nobunaga came close to potentially converting, but he was assassinated before it ever happened. So over time, those alliances uh, between the Christians and the daimyo start to become considered as a threat by the next shogun, Toyotomi Hideyoshi. And that's because the daimyo have the potential to ally with Europeans in order to depose this increasingly centralized government. So the Japanese are aware. They're not fools. They know the Spanish have conquered the Philippines in the late 16th century, and they fear the same thing could happen to them. And the shoguns are really going to start to grow increasingly hostile to Christianity, far more than the Chinese did. And this is really because the shogun fears his countrymen could potentially be worshipping a god who could command more loyalty than the shogun himself. So we're going to see some efforts start to get taken in the late 16th and early 17th century to really clamp down Japanese interactions with the outside world. Christians are going to be severely persecuted in Japan. 
enduring some, enduring some seriously harsh executions, like being crucified or being burned alive. Soon enough, Japanese citizens are forbidden to travel abroad. Europeans are being largely restricted from traveling to Japan. However, the Dutch could make contact with the Japanese in the port of Nagasaki, where there's also going to be a Chinese trade presence as well. And the Japanese are going to enforce this for some time, even at one point beheading most of the sailors who came aboard a Portuguese ship attempting to defy this imperial edict. And the Japanese were kind enough to leave some of the Portuguese alive, but only so they could sail home and tell everyone what happened so no one would mess with the Japanese again. So needless to say, um, European contact is going to be pretty restricted, and Christianity is definitely going to be only practiced in secrecy. But this idea that the Japanese are closed off from the outside world are definitely exaggerated. The Japanese are still trading, albeit in a controlled manner, and they're aware of developments happening in the outside world. And by the early 18th century, some Japanese really take to learning Dutch, and the ban on foreign books gets ended, and this starts to mark an era known for what's called Dutch learning. The sciences of Japan are going to be improved as the Japanese start to learn about Europeans' advancements in the understanding of anatomy and astronomy, not to mention they're going to start borrowing some artistic techniques from the Europeans as well. So with, with Europeans kind of minimalized in terms of the potential threat they could offer and this political instability reigned in, there's more travel occurring throughout the islands and agricultural productivity starts to improve. So the Japanese economy is going to start to grow during this time with some consequences, consequences that are going to undermine traditional Confucian society. Constant chaos in the period preceding the Tokugawa era had meant the daimyo and the samurai were always playing a significant role in fighting so that they could protect and defend in the name of their people. But with the Tokugawa shoguns establishing this era of real significant peace throughout the land, the warrior traits of the samurai are no longer really necessary. So now samurai find themselves earning an education and working as government bureaucrats. The thought of that just a samurai just like in their full getup, which of course didn't happen, but just like sitting at a desk job or like at the DMV kind of cracks me up there. Um, so economically though, these samurai are going to suffer. And they're going to suffer because they traditionally receive payment in rice. And that rice, when they convert it into hard currency, is not really earning them much profits. Now, as trade expanded throughout the country, the merchant classes, who are so despised by Confucian society, if you recall, they grow wealthier, and the samurai are forced to turn to these merchants in order to obtain loans so they can finance this lifestyle that's expected of their social class. So the, the improvement in the economy really has these results that are kind of counterintuitive to the social classes of Japan and really creates some problems that we'll definitely see only grow in the next unit as well. So as the economy grows, so do popular forms of entertainment in Japan. People in cities start to frequent restaurants and tea houses and theaters especially. And during the 17th century, you're going to really start to see kabuki theater take off, which combines singing, combines dancing, as well as some features of like improv, if you will. 
Um, puppet theater known as Bunraku becomes popular during the Tokugawa era as well. So we see this economic expansion, this artistic expansion. And so the Tokugawa shoguns are really going to stabilize Japan and allow for its economy to really experience some success and for the arts to flourish and really engage in this time that could kind of be considered a relative golden age for the Japanese. So I wanted to focus for the zooming in section actually on another key concept that I think is sometimes difficult to pin down with specific evidence from your textbooks, and it relates to to two of them. 431A, which pertains to rulers continuing to use religious ideas, art, and monumental architecture to legitimize their rule, and 433, which deals with particular peasant uprisings and samurai revolts as obstacles to state consolidation and expansion. So let's take a moment to dig into both of these briefly. For the first one, we're going to look at the Qing dynasty for the use of religious ideas and art in order to legitimize rule. Emperors throughout Chinese history had performed rituals in the name of Confucianism in order to demonstrate their possession of the mandate of heaven. For instance, emperors were responsible for a ceremony that's going to be held yearly at the Temple of Heaven, which is located in Beijing. When he worshipped here, it was for the emperor to demonstrate his link to both heaven and earth and his status is being confirmed by the heavens to rule over his people. So there at the Temple of Heaven, the emperor is going to be ordered by a high-ranking bureaucrat, which is kind of surprising, but it also emphasizes how important the bureaucracy was in China. But this bureaucrat is going to order the emperor to bow down to the heavens in what was known as a kowtow. Can't recall if I've mentioned that before, but it's certainly something we'll discuss in more detail in the next unit. So this bowing low, this kowtow, is a gesture that is something all citizens in China do for their ancestors. So it's a ritual that gives a common practice and purpose among all Chinese and kind of unifies them in a way. And oddly enough, the Qing are going to even continue to revere and worship their Ming predecessors, even though they had claimed the former dynasty to have lost the mandate of heaven. Now they're going to do this precisely because they had once held the mandate of heaven. Because this is what the Qing are going to claim to also have given them their rule a grounding in legitimacy as well. So it's, it's strange, you know, you overthrow this dynasty, you say they no longer have the mandate of heaven, but you turn around and you revere them and you worship them and you look up to them because they had the mandate of heaven at one point. They claim to have this thing that you currently claim to have. Because if you renounce them and speak ill of them, What's to stop other people from doing the same to you? So it's this, this touchy subject area for the Chinese emperors. Now, the Qing emperors are also going to use imperial portraits to help solidify their claims of legitimacy. These portraits are often life-size at times, and they depict members of the imperial family that are going to be dressed in the most ornate clothing. But it's also going to feature them in various roles, like Confucian scholars, um, feature them in traditional Chinese leisure activities, or in historical settings to help the Chinese identify with and take pride in their Manchu rulers. Um, One of the Qing emperors, Qianlong, had himself painted as this Buddhist bodhisattva in order to establish himself as part of the Buddhist tradition in the region. 
And he even, for the painting, it's really fascinating, and I'll post it in my blog, he, he commissions a Jesuit missionary, this guy named Giuseppe Castiglione, you can't get much more Italian than that, folks, to paint the emperor's face, to paint the Qianlong emperor's face in the portrait. And maybe this is because he knows of the advancements that had been well established in European art by the 18th century. So it's kind of this combination of traditional Chinese values combined with, with some elements of Buddhism, which of course is kind of not native to China, but has deep roots in China, and then some Italian artistic techniques as well. Just a good example of world history that I'll be sure to share with you in the post, like I said. Um, so turning to 4.3.3, the peasant uprisings and the sam samurai revolts as an obstacle to state consolidation and expansion. We had seen prior to the establishment of the Tokugawa shoguns, there's plenty of peasant revolts and samurai uprisings because the shogun continues to struggle to cement his rule over the islands. So I'll focus on two in particular. 1488, there's, there's one that is known as the Kaga Rebellion. It happens in Kaga province, um, and anywhere from 100,000 to 200,000 Japanese, comprising of people from the lesser nobility, the peasantry, and some Buddhists, and lots of Buddhists for that matter, from a particularly militant sect. Um, the rebels in this rebellion are going to fight and take control of the province for almost 100 years. And so for those hundred years, Kaga province is not controlled by a daimyo family at all. And it's in fact typically known at this time as the province held by farmers. Finally, when Oda Nobunaga takes charge, he is going to have some soldiers who are loyal to him defeat the rebels and help bring that country under more centralized power and absorb um, the Kaga province back into kind of centralized Japanese control. So then we move on to the Tokugawa shoguns, obviously. And we know the Tokugawa shoguns as having brought Japan under this much more centralized authority. There's still a large-scale peasant revolt that was known as the Shimabara Rebellion, and that had broken out 1637-1638. Now why this happened was because the lord who controlled the Shimabara Peninsula had been harsh in his persecutions of Christians, and he had significantly raised taxes on his people in order to pay for the construction of a new castle. So the local peasants and the masterless samurai initiated this rebellion with the assassination of a government official and some other nobles in the first few weeks of this rebellion. Now they had worked to take several castles in the region, but weren't ultimately successful. And when the forces of the shogun came, the tide started to turn against the rebels. The Dutch helped out the shogun's forces by sending gunpowder and weapons and even ships to fire upon the rebel holdouts. Uh, the rebels had holed up in a local castle, but once those forces of the shogun showed up, they made sure to execute all remaining rebels. And the outcome of this rebellion was really the government learned absolutely nothing from the mistakes in their persecutions of Christians or in the overtaxing of their people. All they did was turn around and blamed Christianity for the events and just used this rebellion as another excuse to strengthen their case for what really became, at this point, fully banning Christianity in Japan. So, for the explainer, uh, the first part of your chapter deals with the Europeans, and I really want to kind of just break it down in a very simplified way, what you need to understand about this section in its simplest terms. 
So here we go. My five points for you. One, no one had attempted to establish control of the Indian Ocean trade network until the Portuguese entered the game, let alone no one had tried to even use force to establish control. The Portuguese not only established control, but used force to cement control of trade in the region simply because they didn't have much else either to offer than silver in trade in this region. And exchanging silver for luxury goods and spices, of course, runs against everything that mercantilism held true regarding how to secure wealth and power as a nation. Number two, capturing strategic points along the coast was the operating norm for the Portuguese. So taking cities like Ormuz and Goa and Malacca provided both a point for storing goods to be traded and a place to maintain a naval presence in the region so they could enforce their control over the trade which we know because of them being overstretched in terms of their resources, the Portuguese are not able to cement control for good in that region, let alone for more than a few decades. Number three, the Dutch who replaced the Portuguese in the region as the European force of power are going to be different because they emphasize monopolizing the trade of several different spices like nutmeg and mace and cloves. And because they control the trade of those goods, they can ensure all the profits for the trade of those goods come their way. Now, once the demand for these spices dropped, the Dutch held on a bit less to their economic power by charging fees for transporting goods throughout the region and helping to move Asian goods throughout the Indian Ocean. Number four, Europeans are able to make inroads regarding conquest in some places, like you've seen with the Portuguese and the Dutch in Ceylon or modern-day Sri Lanka, and with the Spanish in the Philippines. But the Europeans learned very quickly they're going to have to humble themselves with people in India and China and Japan, those more established societies, if they really want to establish meaningful trade relations there. Finally, number five, missionary efforts in India had largely failed for the Catholics because of the entrenched power of Hinduism and the difficulties in breaking through the caste system. Catholicism is going to be much more successful in the Philippines because there was no universal faith that had really broken through there before. But we have to remember that Catholicism is going to blend and syncretize with those indigenous traditions and even lead to some Catholics really questioning how Catholic really was the Philippines during this time. So Christianity, even in its place where it was most successful, doesn't really even look like the form of Christianity that most Europeans would have been familiar with. But as we've seen, this trend is nothing new in world history. We've seen universalizing faiths spread all over the world, and as they do, they're always going to absorb those native practices into the new territories where they come into play. My recommendation for you tonight is going to be a movie. And this movie is pretty new. It came out in 2016, and it's called Silence. Uh, It's directed by Martin Scorsese, who's famous for movies like The Departed and Gangs of New York, uh, one of my personal favorites. So Silence is about Portuguese missionaries who make their way into Japan and their experiences there. They're they're really uh, brutal experiences there. Now, it's not based on a, a, an actual historical event, but it, it really is shockingly accurate 
in its depictions of how the Japanese interact as a society, for better and for worse, with Christianity. It's pretty graphic in terms of how it deals with torture and executions, which gives it overall its R rating. But it really, I think, in a way I've never really seen with any other movie, it really makes this history, this era of history, I should say, come alive, even if it's in a really uncomfortable way. So if you're allowed to check out an R-rated movie, I definitely would recommend Silence as being one of the ones to give a look to. But for now, that's all I've got for you. So hopefully you found that to be useful. Until next time, take care, everyone.